If you have a Bible, turn uh, to John chapter 8. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. Author and pastor, uh, former atheist Lee Strobel, uh, talks about the time that his five-year-old daughter, Allison, uh, committed her life to Christ. And uh, he, he, he starts by telling, by just really asking the question, how can I even begin to explain uh, the difference that Jesus has made in my life? He said, my, uh, my daughter Allison committed her life to Christ when she was five years old. And he said, during those five years, all that she knew of her dad was, was just anger and profanity. He said there were many times he would come home from work, he'd be so angry, he would just kick a wall or punch a hole in the wall. And he said, I shudder to think how many times she went and hid herself in, in her room just so that she wouldn't have to be around me. And so about uh, five months after he had committed his life to Christ, she came to faith in Christ. And she didn't come to faith in Christ because she studied the archaeological evidence for the truth of Scripture. She came to faith in Christ because she observed the difference that Jesus made in her dad's life. That she noticed that her dad was no longer angry and profane, but he was filled with love and joy and peace. And so five months after he had given his life to Christ, she went up to her mom and said, Mom, whatever Jesus did for daddy, I want him to do it for me. And so Lee Strobel said, Jesus turned my life upside down. He changed my marriage. He changed my family. He changed my eternity. And see, really, that's why we sing. Because that's the difference that grace has made in all of our lives, right? That's the difference. And so we're in week three of a series that we're calling This Is My Story. And what we're really doing is just looking at different men and women in Scripture who experience the, the, the saving grace of God in their life. And it, and it totally changed them. It totally turned their life upside down. And so we're looking at these encounters, these life-changing encounters uh, with, with different characters in the Scripture that... Um, that we're just transformed uh, because of the grace of God. And so today what I want us to do is, <clears throat> I want you to turn to John chapter 8, but I want us to look at the woman who was caught uh, in adultery today. And uh, we're going to read through this. Now before, before we read through this, let me just kind of set it up for you, because if, if you're going to follow along in Scripture, you're going to notice that uh, chapter 7, verse 53, all the way to 8, verse 11 are bracketed. If you, if you have your Bible open to that, you'll see that there are brackets around that section of Scripture. And you'll also notice there's probably a footnote in your Scripture that says that the earliest manuscripts don't have this section, this story, uh, in, in those manuscripts. So let me just kind of explain uh, what, what's happening there so that you can kind of understand what we're looking at. So, so basically we have 5,600 copies in whole or in part of the New Testament. And so the earliest manuscripts that we have, the earliest dated manuscripts, don't contain this story that we're about to read. And so this has been a topic of so, many, so much discussion in you know, the circles of Bible scholars and theologians. But basically, one, one thought is, is that John did not actually write this story. So when you do an analysis on the the writing style that we're about to look at, it's very different from everything else that we're reading in the Gospel of John. And so the thought is, is that someone else wrote this story. And one theory among 
among Bible commentators and scholars is that Luke wrote this because there are several characteristics of Luke's writing that are found here. And one of them is that Luke's very concerned in his writings in Acts and in the Gospel of Luke with the marginalized, the outcast, uh, and, and quote-unquote sinners. And so you, have, you definitely have that here. And so really the thought is, is that uh, when, the, when the Gospel of John was written, they obviously didn't have a printing press. So what they had to do is they had to hand copy those scrolls. And so the thought is, is a copyist added what Luke had written into John's gospel, into this section. And then in the later manuscripts of John, we have this story. And so uh, that's really the kind of the thought process. Now, let me just kind of tell you this. Uh, the, the reason why I think we can absolutely trust this story is because it beautifully illustrates the character of Jesus. And let me just kind of explain what I mean. In the all four Gospels, you see Jesus interacting with all kinds of people. The lame, the blind, the lepers, uh, the outcasts, uh, prostitutes, sinners. He's interacting with, with, with so many different types of people. And this story falls right in line. It's very much parallel with, with Jesus' interactions with them. And the other thing that I would say, and this is the most convincing reason why I believe we can trust this, this story, is because it illustrates beautifully the Gospel of Jesus. So this story doesn't detract from any Bible doctrine. It doesn't add to any Bible doctrine. What it does is it illustrates the doctrine of grace for us. So you can, you can read a little bit more about that uh, in, in some commentaries for sure. So, uh, but I want to just kind of set that as the backdrop before we read this. So I want to invite you, if you're willing and able, let's stand together out of reverence for the Word of God, a God who has spoken and revealed himself to us. So we'll begin at verse 53. So they, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all, all the people came to him to the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded to us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the sand. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Now, this story really is a, a perfect picture of how Jesus relates to the outcast, to the marginalized. It's also a beautiful story of how Jesus related to us when we, when we became a Christian, when we committed our lives to Christ. Now, some of you remember that day. Some of you don't remember that day. But one of the ways in which 
he dealt with us is that he dealt with us graciously and gently. And that's exactly what we see here. See, the moment that you came to faith in Christ, that moment that you bowed your knee and your heart to the saving grace of God, God could have blown you away and had been perfectly justified in doing so. But what did he do? He dealt so graciously and so gently with us. And really what this does is it reminds us of a, of a prophecy that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born about how Jesus, how the Messiah would relate to us. And you see it in Isaiah 40, 42, verse, verse 3, and the prophet Isaiah records this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, the question is, well, what, what, is, what does that really mean? And I, and I think the, the short answer is this, that what we see in the person of Jesus is that he, he perfectly combines compassion and justice together. That's what you see in the life of Jesus. He is, he is you know, perfectly balanced in this whole issue of law and grace or morality and, and mercy. And, and it's not that Jesus is kind of halfway between strength and tenderness. He's not, he's not that. What he is is perfect strength and perfect tenderness. And there's a huge difference there. And so Jesus is perfect love and he's also perfect justice. Jesus is perfectly righteous and holy to the nth degree but he's also perfectly compassionate and melt-in-your-mouth gentle. He just is. That's, that's who he is. And so these two traits don't fight in him. They actually unite perfectly in him. They are perfect in him because he is perfect in himself. And so what Isaiah 42 verse 3 says is there's going to be a day when Jesus, when de when Jesus deals justly with the sin in the world. But what it also tells us is that he is so sensitive and tender, he will not break a bruised heart. He will not quench a faintly burning wick. And that is a beautiful thing. So here's what I want us to do today. I think there's, I think there's really two things that we can see in this, in this interaction with the woman caught in adultery. I think, first of all, we see the problem. Uh, we see the problem of sin. And we see the solution, which is grace. So just really simplifying it down to that, that's what we see in this. We see it, the problem is sin. When you and I came to Christ, what was the problem? The problem was sin. The problem was my sin and your sin separates us from a holy God. What, what, what the problem is, is my sin and your sin invites the judgment of God on us. The just judgment. That's the problem. That's why we needed a Savior. That's why the solution, which is grace, is so beautiful. Because what grace does is it overcomes the infection of sin that we have in all of us. So let's, so let's look at the problem and then we'll look at the solution and we'll, we'll talk about some applications. Here, here's the problem, sin. Look with me at verse 3. Notice, notice how the writer writes this. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst placing her in the midst, 
they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And uh, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, we're told twice in this passage that, sh- that she is, she's been caught in adultery. So her problem is sin. And uh, that sin is unquestioned. She, she is brought to Jesus. She's embarrassed. You can only imagine the embarrassment. You can only imagine the feelings of guilt and shame and, and just worthlessness that she, that she felt. And so she is guilty before God. And that's what our sin does to us. Is it brings guilt and shame and these feelings of worthlessness. And so no one is disputing her guilt. Her guilt has been established. There's no question about that. Now, according to the Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses to establish this adultery before someone would be executed. Or you had to have two witnesses. And you couldn't just, according to the Jewish law, you couldn't just suspect that someone was having an affair. You had to see it in the act. You had to have two witnesses. You had to actually see it in the act. Now, the other thing that I would, I would tell you is this, that Jesus is not being asked about her guilt Like I said, that guilt has already been established. What he's being asked about is her penalty, the penalty that she must pay. And so the Pharisees are alluding to basically Leviticus 20 verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22, 22, where it basically says, if you have an adulterous relationship and, and there are two witnesses to it, you should be executed. All right, so that's what the law of Moses basically says. That's kind of the backdrop here. The reality is the Pharisees don't care about her. They're after Jesus. And the reality is, is they're using her to get to him. And they have set a trap for Jesus. And it is a beautiful trap, or I should say a crafty trap is more accurate to say. The two issues that Jesus are really, he's really confronted with is this. On one hand, the life of the woman. And then on the other hand, the divine law of Moses. And they've got Jesus square right in the middle. And it is the perfect trap. They know that Jesus is a teacher of grace. They know that tax collectors and sinners and, and you know, all kinds of quote-unquote sinful people flock to him because of the message of good news and the message of forgiveness that he, he preaches and teaches to them. But they also know that they have Jesus quoted basically saying that the law of Moses is from God. That it's a, it is a given from God and not one jot or tittle will pass away until that law is fulfilled. So the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, if, if he says she should be stoned, then that will invalidate his message of grace and thus kill his following. If he goes against the law of Moses, then they, that will be sufficient enough for them to arrest him and bring him up on charges of subverting their, their religion. And so they had him, or at least that they thought. And here's the problem. If you follow the law completely, you will crush people because we can't keep the law. But if you undermine the law, everybody will do whatever they want to do. Everybody will do what's right in their own eyes. So then the question becomes, how do you reconcile law and grace? How do you fuse mercy and morality together? How do you do that? Well, Jesus does it perfectly, as you might imagine. 
Uh, he's not moved by this trap. He's not challenged by it. Because why? Because he is perfect justice and he is perfect grace. And what we see that he does is he upholds the law and he saves the lawbreaker. He upholds the, the, the beauty and the truth and the, the holiness of the law. But yet he has a way of saving the lawbreaker. Now, as I as I mentioned to you, to you all, that this is, this is clearly a, a case of entrapment. And, and I will tell you, too, about this law, because you're, you're, like, you're thinking, man, this law is really strict. Um, and, and, it, and it is, but it was hardly ever used in Jewish society. So adultery was just like today. It was rampant in Jesus' day. And it was very difficult to prove. And so, and so this, you know, hardly anyone was ever executed. Uh, for adultery. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is the, a, a commentary on the Old Testament, it's a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it basically stated that if someone was executed once every seven years for adultery, that basically Israel was running a slaughterhouse. And so it was just rarely, if ever, even used. But what's really happening here is this is a complete setup. The Pharisees have orchestrated this whole thing. And the evidence by that is where is the man? They've brought just the woman. And uh, the last time I checked, it takes two to tango. You guys know what I'm saying? So the question is, well, where, where is the man? And so Old Testament law absolutely required that you brought both of them. But the man is not here. So, so really what you're seeing is you're seeing partiality. You're seeing a double standard, right? And the reality is, is I bet the man was in on the trap and uh, the Pharisees just let him go. And so, and so this is to a total entrapment because Jesus is a threat to them and they want to rid themselves of the threat. So what does he do? He points out the problem of sin. And he's not focusing on her sin anymore. He's going to widen the lens and then focus a laser right on their sin. Let me show you what he does. Look at verse 6. This is so beautiful. This is so cool. And he, says it, he says this, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, a lot has been, a lot has been said about this. Uh, a, lot, a lot of ink has been you know, given out for this. And basically... The question is, well, what did he write? And the answer is, we really don't know what he wrote in the sand. There's some theory that he wrote, he wrote Exodus 23.1, which is a law against being a malicious witness, which is what these guys are. Uh, he, could have, he could have been just writing in the sand different sins that the Pharisees had committed. He could have been writing in the sand to get their eyes off her, as you might imagine, their eyes might be on her because of the compromising situation that they found her in and to get their eyes on Jesus. He could be doing any, any number of those things. And so they, they pressed him. They, can, they, they stood up and basically said to him in verse 7, they say this, and they continue to ask him. He stood up and said to them, you know, they're continuing to ask him, what's your response going to be? And this is what he says, and it's beautiful. He says, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, he's not saying that a stone should not be thrown. He's not saying that, uh, 
you know, there doesn't need to be punishment. He's not invalidating the law at all. But what he is doing is he's basically saying this. None of you guys that are so eager to throw the stone are qualified. In fact, you are disqualified. He looks at them and says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. He's also not saying that you have to be a sinless person to execute the demands of the law. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is, I know the law of Moses and the, and the law against adultery for which you bring her to me. What about the adultery in your life, Pharisees? What about, what about the law against conspiracy, Pharisees? What about the law against partiality? Pharisees. And basically what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to deny the law of Moses. I'm actually raising up the law of Moses and I am denying your qualifications to execute it because of the sin that you've been living in. And then what, what the story tells us is that one by one, they, and it's, it's interesting from older to younger was the order that they went, but one by one, they, they dropped their stones and, and walk out. And I think what we see here is that the problem is sin. And it's not just her sin. It's their sin. And the problem is our sin. Because what it does is it, it destroys us. And see, what's happening here is, is, that, is that Jesus has to name their sin because they're not willing to name it. They're not willing to own it. They're not willing to take responsibility for it and repent. And so he's going to name it. And so, see, salvation comes to the person who is willing to take responsibility for their sin. Who's willing to say, yes, I failed and I have broken the law of God. See, we live in a society today where people don't want to do that where people want to point the finger in some other direction. But you see, grace works in the heart that says, I'm responsible. This is what I've done. These are my sinful choices. And see, that's a heart that God can work with. So the problem is sin. But then the question is, what is the solution? And the solution is grace. So one by one, these guys have exited this whole tribunal. And we see in verse 10 something absolutely beautiful. What I think is a beautiful illustration of the gospel in the word of grace from Jesus. He, he stood up in verse 10 and he said to her, woman, where are they? I mean, they've left the premises and it's just Jesus and this woman. And he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. No one. And Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. Go, go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, what he has done is this. He has dealt with her accusers. He has dealt with her legal case. He has dealt, he has dealt with her on the legal level. Now he's going to turn his attention to her heart level. Because that's where the issue is. He is... He has afflicted the comfortable and chasing off the Pharisees. And now he's going to comfort the afflicted with a word of grace to her. And so it's interesting that Jesus doesn't call her a victim. It's interesting that he doesn't say that she's a victim of this. 
It's interesting also that he's not in, engaged in any effort where she's allowed to blame shift for the situation that she's in. But what he does say to her is, is there no one here to condemn you? Neither do I. Now go leave your life of sin. Now, how in the world can he say that? How in the world can he uphold the law and save the lawbreaker at that moment? How in the world, on what basis can he say that you are, you are not under condemnation? And here is the beauty and here is the majesty of the gospel. And it's this in one sentence. You're guilty and I don't condemn you. You are guilty and I don't condemn you. That is, that is the beauty and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus. What Jesus has done is he has destroyed this case. He has removed the witnesses. He has dismissed the, the, the charges brought against her. And he is bringing to her a word of grace that sets her free. And I love this because it flows right out of Romans 8.1, a passage that we've looked at a number of times where the Apostle Paul says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God that in Christ our condemnation has been removed. It has been taken away. We have been set free in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul writes this, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the, the righteousness of God. And so the basis by which Jesus can say, neither do I condemn you, is the fact that Jesus will be condemned for her. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. Jesus knows that he's going to take on her condemnation in himself. And so the basis by which he can say it is grace. And so he looks at her and he says basically this, sister, I don't condemn you. You know why? Because I'm going to take on your condemnation for you. He basically looks at her and says, you know, the stones that should be thrown to you, they're going to be thrown at me in your place. And the spear that should be stabbing your side is going to stab my side. And the thorns that should be landing so hard on your head will be landing on mine. Dear sister, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's what he's saying to her. You see, that is, that is the essence of what the gospel really is, is that, you know, our life, our life before God is, is, is sin infected and we're blocked from God and we deserve condemnation coming down on our life. But what Jesus did is he took the condemnation for us, setting us free. And it's not buy one, get one free. It is buy none and get everything free. That's the message of the gospel. And so Jesus can say, I don't condemn you because I'm going to take it for you. And so she had no idea what was happening. She, she didn't know what was coming down the road. She didn't know that that was right around the corner. But she knew grace when she experienced it. Now let me just... Let's just apply this. Let's just look, look at it a little bit more closely and really apply it today. Let me give you three very simple applications in the time that we have left. Number one, it's this. If you're bruised, you need to go to him. That's the first and foremost thing. If you're bruised today, if you're beaten down, if you're wounded, if you're disappointed, if you are hurt, if you are broken, if you are bruised, you need to go to him. You see, if you're beaten down, 
because of life and you're beaten down because of sinful choices you have made, you need to go to him. You know why? Because a bruised reed he will not break. Are you feeling guilty and filled with shame? Are you embarrassed? You need to go to him. You know why? Because a faintly burning wick, he's not going to quench. Are you feeling like you've lived your whole life and you look back over your life and you're filled with regret? What you need to do is go to him. What you need to do is go to him. You know why? Because he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will take something bad and restore the years that the locusts have eaten. That's grace. You see, by taking upon himself the punishment that we should have had, we find healing, we find grace, we find mercy, we find a complete heart change in the midst of this. And by that, we are healed. That's what Isaiah 53 verse 5 says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And man, look at these words. And with his wounds or by his wounds. We are healed. So if you're bruised, you need to go to him. And here's the thing, church. He will deal so graciously and so gently with you. You know why? Because he loves you. Now, there is one caveat. When you come to him, you got to own your stuff. You got to own your sin. Because what blocks the grace of God is you blaming someone else. Hell is filled with a lot of people blaming someone else. And the promise of the gospel is 1 John 1, 9 that says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in other words, he or she who comes to me, in no way will I cast out, Jesus says. In no way. Is there no one here to condemn you? Jesus says, neither do I. Neither do I. So if you're bruised, you need to go to him. I would say the second thing is the word of grace empowers us to obey. The word of grace that Jesus gives to this woman caught in the act of adultery is is a word of grace that actually empowers us to obey. Jesus doesn't look at her and say, you know, is there no one here to condemn you? Neither do I. Now go do whatever you want to do. He doesn't say that. Now, our culture says that. Our culture says, man, if it feels good, do it. You know, if you're feeling love, go ahead and do it. Go all the way. Just you do you, right? That's what the culture says. But Jesus doesn't say that. You see, what Jesus knows is that if you really love someone, you're never going to say that. Why? Because what they're doing is destroying themselves. And Jesus loves us and he doesn't want to see sin destroy us. And heterosexuality outside of marriage will destroy us. And so what Jesus is calling her to is he's calling out of this self-destructive sin. He's he's interrupting this this self-destructive behavior. Why? Because he loves her. And love doesn't just sit back and watch somebody go over the cliff. And so he calls her out and that grace empowers her to rise above her sinful choices in the past. Now, the question then becomes, well, how does grace empower us to obey and to grow? 
That's a great question. I don't think we talk about this enough. But how does grace empower us to obey? We think a lot of times as grace as a license. Like, oh man, I'm going to go on sinning so that grace may increase. And uh, we know Romans says, by no means. You can't do that. Uh, Grace actually gives us the power to live an obedient life. And I want to show you this. I want you to notice again in verse Verse 11, this is, this is so amazing. Jesus asked her, and I want you to notice the order here. He says to her, is there, is, you know, where is everybody? Is there no one here to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now notice the order. He doesn't say to her, go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. He doesn't say that. What he's saying is, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You see that? That's absolutely huge. And basically, I think the message of the gospel is encapsulated in that. It's basically a call to get off the treadmill of human effort and human striving to make yourself worthy in your own eyes or in the eyes of someone else or in the eyes of your parents or in the eyes of God. Get off the treadmill. Quit trying to do more and work harder and be more in your own strength and in your own power. What basically Jesus is saying is take in, internalize my acceptance and love for you, my no condemnation of you. And then out of that, let your obedient life and growth in Christ flow. You see, some of you are not growing and changing. You're not walking closely with God because you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your own goodness. And uh, it's really just self-justification. And what Jesus is advocating is not working for your salvation, but working from your salvation. Not trying to earn acceptance, but taking the acceptance that we have in Christ and letting that empower us and, and, and lead us out of sinful life-dominating habits in our lives. So here's the interesting thing, and you guys have heard me talk about this, but uh, Jesus knows everything about her. She is is completely exposed, all of her habits and hang-ups and her sins. Of course, he knows that about all of us too, right? So, So he knows all about that, and yet he looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. And so when you think about the people that you love the most in your life, Who are those people? They're people that know all the skeletons in your closet, and yet they love you anyway. They know you're good and you're bad. They know your warts and your bad breath. They they know your stinky feet. They know all of that. And you know what? They love you anyway. And that's, that's the picture of the Savior that we have here. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling her out of promiscuity and he's calling her into the gospel she is being awakened to the love of God she is realizing the love of God for her and the way that you and I overcome sin is not through trying harder and doing more and being better but the way that we overcome sin is we love something else more than the sin that we love and who is that something else it's Jesus you see You see, the truth is this, love is not a duty that one performs. Love is a delight that one prefers. 
And so Titus tells us this, verses, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, what Titus is reminding us of is when we wrap ourselves in the love and the grace of God, that is empowerment to rest as we, as we leave our sin behind us. And so grace empowers us to really obey. Here's the last one, and I'll end with this. I think another application, very simply, is that you need to share your story of God's grace. You need to share your story of God's grace. You know, when you, when you think about this particular story, and I, and I talked about, you know, Luke could have recorded this, or, you know, it might have been John. We don't really know. But have you ever thought about this? When everybody left, it was just Jesus and the woman. So how in the world do we know what Jesus even said to her if everybody else is gone? I mean, who was in the background writing this down? How would we know what happened to her? How would we know that Jesus would say to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. How would we know that? We would know through the woman. We would know that after she came to saving faith in Christ, you know what she did? She went and shared she went and told the apostles, right? She went and told other believers. She said, this is what the Savior did for me. He, he knew everything about me, and he didn't condemn me, and he told me to go and sin no more. He knew my, the story of my problem. He knew the story of my solution, which is the grace of God. And I just want to ask you, are you willing to share that? Are you willing to testify to that? And I pray that tomorrow, this week, you get an opportunity to even share it. And so, I don't know where you are today. You may be here just within the sound of my voice or online. You, you, you may be like, I, I, need, I need that grace of God in my own life. And my, my question is this, have you received Jesus as your Savior? Do you know the grace of God in your own life? See, if you don't, I just want to challenge you to do what, what Peter preached in Acts. They asked him, Peter, what must we do to be saved? And you know what he said? Very simple. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. And have you taken that step? Because if, if you have, church, the Bible promises, Jesus promises, you will be saved. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. We, we stand blown away that even though we are guilty, we are not condemned. Lord, that is, that is astonishing. It is nothing short of amazing grace that you know everything about us, you know every thought, every motive, you know every hair on our head. Um, and you still love us. And so God, I just ask that for the men and women and students 
that are on the treadmill of self-effort and self-justification, God, that, Lord, by your grace, they just exit off today. It's just time to get off. It's time to stop trusting in ourselves and trusting in the grace and the mercy of God. And I just, Lord, my prayer is that your, your spirit would be so real, so evident in our hearts. And God, I just pray that for those that need to cross the line of faith today, that need to move into salvation, they would repent and believe. And God, I just also ask that that we would just be wide-eyed and wonder that you saved us. And I ask that you would work change in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our words you would bring change just like you did for Lee Strobel and just like you did for his daughter Allison do it do it in us God we love you we praise you in Jesus name